You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. This is Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, we have specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. From the very beginning, we have been family-owned and family-run. Our tents have become the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers all over the world, and especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who demand utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, our tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. Hello, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AAJ, and host of this show. We've got a real treat this time. Two certified experts on the climbing in Patagonia, breaking down the recent season. Our guest is Rolando Garibati, the AAJ's main Patagonia correspondent. Rolo is a climbing historian and editor of the definitive guidebook to the Chalten Massif, and a great climber in his own right. Among many other climbs, he was the first to do the Torre Traverse, from Cerro Stanhart over Torre Eger to Cerro Torre, climbing with Colin Haley. On the other end of the line for this episode is Kelly Cordes, who climbed Cerro Torre about a decade ago, and then wrote The Tower, a really great book about the history and controversies on Cerro Torre. Kelly was an editor of the AHA for about a decade, and it's awesome to have him helping out with this podcast. In this show, Kelly and Rollo look back at the season that just concluded in southern Patagonia, including Jim Reynolds' amazing solo ascents and solo descents without using a rope of Fitzroy and other peaks. They also take a look at the string of serious accidents and rescues that happened this year and offer some suggestions for climbers coming to Patagonia or similar ranges and some things people ought to think about. It's a really thoughtful look behind this year's headlines and I found it fascinating. We pick it up with Rolo talking about the weather, naturally, near his home in El Chelten, Argentina. So it was the third season in a row uh, with mean values as far as weather goes. To translate that, pretty shitty, actually, you know? So um, very, very few long windows, um, a lot of instability. Right. So these mean weather values are different atmospheric measures. And when they're at a certain level, it, it indicates that there was a lot of good weather. And this year they were pretty normal, which translates to bad climbing weather that's correct yeah we we haven't had um so in in the years 2008 2012 2015 2016 we had anomaly years meaning we had years where um the antarctic oscillation was further south than usual so the ring of low pressures around antarctica was further south than usual so we benefited from really good weather so that hasn't happened the last three seasons. So people have been a little bit surprised. People had come to expect that those anomalies were the norm. And now they're coming uh, to realize that the anomalies are exactly that, anomalies. Right. So <laughs> as humans, we've got um, short memories because Patagonia has been so renowned for its bad weather. But then we have a few seasons of good weather and uh, we all get antsy. I guess it's understandable in a way. You want to climb in these beautiful mountains, right? 
Yeah, people get used to all the sending and they assume that there's going to be a send train and that the send train is going to be every season. In particular, <laughs> in particular, because there was two seasons in a row that were really, really good. And yes. um, yeah, now it's back to reality. So we'll see. I mean, if, even though climatically uh, what's forecasted for this area long term is drier, warmer weather, um, I mean, we'll have to see in the short term how that pans out. I mean, because progression right. progression is never linear. So these predictions from climatologists are not necessarily linear, are uh, back and forth. No? So, yeah, time will tell. Right. But nonetheless, there, there were some pretty impressive ascents this year, right? Um, yes. Um, so the first one happened in October when uh, Martin Elias, François Ponset, and Jerome Sullivan, they went over to Cerro San Lorenzo. Cerro San Lorenzo yeah. is in central Patagonia. It's about um, 400 kilometers north of Chaltén. Um, it, it's in the border with Chile, and it has a huge east face that people have been trying to climb for a long, long, long time. And what um, Jerome and his partners climbed is they did the first ascent of a big tower, um, which is located at the south end of the east face. It's a beautiful, beautiful thousand meter tall tower that had not yeah. been climbed before. And uh, it has the problem that the rock quality is less than ideal. So that's why they went in October, because they wanted the cold conditions to keep the kitty litter together. Keep it frozen together. So this was not like... Um... Well, this is not like clipping bolts at Shelf Road where I was last weekend, is it? No, it's really, really bad rock. And uh, I think they mostly mix climbed. And in the crux pitch, they had to aid climb some. But it was uh -huh. definitely mobile. So the, so the rock was, <laughs> yeah, the, the climbing itself was mobile. So I think it was quite challenging. And this, um, I mean, the interesting part about this is that it was probably the hardest virgin summit left in Patagonia. And, wow. I and I think the impressive part is um, Jerome has amassed uh, with this ascent, so his third big first ascent in Patagonia, and all of them remote, all of them unusual. The other two were um, the southeast ridge of Cerro Murajon, which is a superb big wall-like feature. Yeah, really beautiful. And then the other one was two years ago was um, Cerro Riso Patron on the fjords on the Chilean side, um, slightly further south from El Chalten, um, a nice route, totally different character from Murajon or from this last climb that they did. So, right. so yeah, Jerome has amassed uh, quite a number of good first ascents in the last few years. Yeah, he, he's kind of showing that there's still a lot of difficult, technical, yet also exploratory climbing in Patagonia. Now, on the, on the other hand, did much happen around Chalten this year? So a few ascents that were reasonable. I mean, yeah, some of them were important, quote-unquote. A couple of ascents of the Southeast Ridge, a repeat of El Corazon a free ascent on points and odd, but little else. I mean, volume-wise, it was uh, yeah. quite, quite little, and quality-wise, until recently, was quite little. And, and, and then until recently, what do you mean by that? 
So basically a few people stuck around for the later part of the season. One of them is Jim Reynolds. Jim Reynolds is a young 25-year-old from California. He works uh, for Search and Rescue in Yosemite. Yeah, he took soloing in this area to some degree to the next level. So he did two ascents of um, Aguja Rafael Juarez and Santa Exupery, in which he uh-huh. climbed both up and down free solo. So he, 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 he climbed up and down, yeah, without a rope. Um, in the case of Rafael Juarez, he climbed the complete West Ridge and he down climbed the Anglo Americana. And in the case mm-hmm. of Santa Exupery, he climbed up Chiaro di Luna. He onsighted it. And then, onsight? Yeah. And then he down onsighted the Kearney Harrington. And, wow. he, and in the last few days, um, he upped the ante, so to speak. So what he did is um, he free soloed the Afanasiev and he down climbed the Afanasiev on Fitzroy. So this is a uh, five. Yeah, that's the. Longest route on Fitzroy, I believe, yeah? Yeah, pretty much. So it's a 5,000 route on the northwest ridge. And um, yeah, amazingly, he managed to pull it off. He made an attempt early on in which he got up halfway up roughly or not even a third of the way up and then came back down. But um, he didn't know the route. He had never done it. He had never been on Fitzroy, Um, nothing. So, yeah, so it's, I mean, what's fascinating is the approach. I mean, this idea of um, climbing up and down, which he explained explained it to me as the best possible form of art he could come up with. So he explained it as an ethical statement, so to speak. I mean, trying to make the most out of an ascent by free soloing up it and then down soloing up it. Uh, it's certainly the first time that that has happened here. And right. uh, with but it's not, but it's not a new concept by any means, is it? No, it's actually a hundred year old concept. It was um, Paul Preuss, an Austrian, was the first one to come up with it. So in essence, in essence, what he argued was that ethically to make an ascent fair, one not only had to climb up, but one had to have the capacity to, to climb down as well. That that, was, that that was the sporting way to do an ascent. Wow. Well, those are high standards. Um, yes. I mean, he didn't, Paul Preuss didn't last long. No, I mean, I think he started climbing right. around 1909, and by 1913, he had passed away and he died soloing, no? Um, yeah. He was a very educated fellow. He had a PhD in plant physiology or plant biology. And um, so, so he also wrote his thoughts down uh, in quite a clear way. I mean, in several articles and essays. So uh-huh. he's, he's been present at, at, at every ethical discussion that you hear about climbing. His his name comes up um, because he's like the ethical godfather. There was a lot of people that questioned him. Now there was a long back and forth in one of the uh, big journals of the day, of the German uh-huh. Alpine Club, 
and there was a number of climbers that responded to him. And one of them was a friend of his, an Italian climber by the name of Tita Piaz. And what Tita argued um, was that our relatives have more right to us than our climbing ideals. And he also argued, I mean, amongst many arguments, he also argued that even knights um, use armor to protect themselves. Right, right. So, I wow. mean, in, 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 essence, in, in essence, we go back to, um, to the discussion of whether, uh, I mean, of what place free soloing has in, a, in the culture of our sport and what place risk as a yardstick has in the culture of our sport. I mean, if you, yes. if, if you watch free solo and if you, if you realize the impact that free solo is having, I mean, then, then you think the movie free solo, then you think that um, danger is a very, very important yardstick in our sport and is one of the principal yardsticks. I mean, but honestly, I mean, at least from my perspective, I mean, we should, we should be getting away from this gladiator samurai approach. I mean, we should be evolving into understanding that risk, we're doing the activity in spite of risk, and we're not considering risk as a yardstick and as a value added. Um, mm -hmm. But, but you know, it's, it's, yeah. easy, it's easy for me to say that 47 years old, um, it's, it's a little different, of course. I mean, I can, relate, sure. I can relate to Jim. Jim is 25 years old. He's trying to make his own statements. I've done, yes. a, I've done a lot of soloing in my life, so I can also not be a hypocrite and uh, criticize um, something that he feels very strongly about. I mean, so this is a way yeah. that... This is a way that he found to express himself. This is this is what he considers the best possible form of the art. Mm -hmm. And what right. I mean, what I find very interesting is the provocation. No, I mean this is a this is an incredible provocation to be climbing up and down these towers. I mean to climb up and down Rafael Juarez, to climb up and down Saint Exupery, and and more than anything to climb up and down Fitzroy is something that right. until recently would have been totally inconceivable. But how would you consider it a provocation? Well, I think it's a provocation because it, um, it I mean, it will spark a big discussion. I mean, there's little doubt yeah. that this will generate a huge, huge discussion about, um, I mean, be because the discussion is beyond the use of ropes. I mean, the discussion is the use of equipment and our reliance on equipment and also I mean, some of the discussions should be, should be centered about what it means to make a free ascent. Um, yeah. Because this, this conversation about rappelling had come out before with Marc-André Leclerc uh, regarding, mm -hmm. regarding Torre Egar, for example. If you climbed up and down uh, Torre Eger going over the summit of Punta Herron, but rappelled from Punta Herron to continue up Torre Eger, had you done a free ascent of Torre Eger or not? Mm -hmm. um, when there's a rappel in the middle involved, no? I mean, of, of course, yeah. of course on, the, on El Cap, a rappel in the middle is not considered free. Um, yeah. I mean, Tommy... Tommy, the, the dino pitch on the dawn wall, Tom, Tommy downclimbed it. So then, right. so then why, we, why should we consider free rappelling down from the summit of Fitzroy? 
So in some ways, you could yeah. consider that Jim's ascent is the uh-huh. first free ascent of Fitzroy because he climbed free <laughs> up and down. So I think yeah. I think the potential to spark a number of ethical discussions that his ascents set um, is quite interesting. So I'm looking forward yes. to the discussion. Very much so. And, and these things have been going on, as you mentioned, uh, for a long time. Uh, so Preuss was early 1900s. And then speaking of the use of equipment in Patagonia, of course, there's uh, Maestri with the compressor out, one of the most famous cases in history of uh, what most people consider too much reliance on equipment. Do, do you know if Reynolds was aware of Preuss and his style? Like, was Preuss an influence at all on Jim Reynolds? Uh, no, actually, Jim didn't know who he was, which is even more surprising. So it, wow. it's surprising that he came up with this idea without being influenced or knowing knowing who Paul Preuss was. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's see. So uh, I guess there were a couple of other interesting ascents in the area. Uh, there was like a free route on Point Sano, a couple of ascents of the southeast ridge of Cerro Torre, which is where the compressor route used to be. Um, El Corazon got repeated on Fitzroy. And then there was a good attempt on the north face of Cerro Torre. In many ways, that one to me seems the most interesting of, um, you know, as a lot of times it's not just what actually got climbed, but what what was attempted. When, when top-notch climbers either barely succeed or barely don't, it kind of represents some of the cutting edge, I think. What was going on on the north face of the Torre? So Tommy Aguilo in 2013 tried a route uh, on the far left side of the face. So the north face of Cerro Torre is 450 meters high. Um, Col- I mean, yeah. Colin Haley climbed a route on the far right side, which is a little shorter. It must be about... Yeah, uh, yeah, four hundred meters or three fifty, something like that. Probably, yeah, three fifty. And how big is your route? Um, so, you have Alarca de los Vientos. Yeah, but we went we went over to the northwest side and then came came back over to the north side, only four pitches from the top. So we 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 skirted our way around most of the difficulties on the north face. So. Colin and Marc-André Leclerc, so Colin Haley and Marc-André Leclerc, um, with their Directa de la Mentira, climb a much longer line. And then okay. um, Tommy has been trying to climb a complete line, so from bottom it, to top. Who has been trying to climb it? Would you repeat that? It was Tommy Aguilo, who is a young Argentine climber, very capable. Yep. Very and then. Capable an Italian climber by the name of Corra Pesce, Corrado Pesce, and an, yes. another Argentine climber, Jorge Ackerman. So the, the three of them managed to get nine pitches up um, before it got too warm and they had to bail. Because yeah. the key feature of the North Face is that it's capped by rhyme mushrooms. So the, mm-hmm. the minute that the sun hits them, um, they it starts shedding, so temperature is a big issue. So um, right. unfortunately, it was too warm. Yeah. Well, those when those mushrooms start to shed and crumble down the face, it can be quite dangerous. But that that's an incredibly 
an incredibly capable trio, those guys. So it's an impressive attempt, it sounds. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're going to try again. They have every every intention of trying again. So we'll hear more from them. So, but the key feature, the key feature, unfortunately, of the season uh, this year were the accidents. Um, right. Um, there were several. There were several deaths this season. A death on Cerro Solo, which is an easy peak uh, to the side of the massif, which was a result of scrambling. Um, so two people scrambling themselves into trouble. There, there was an accident with icefall on Paso Marconi where somebody has suffered really bad internal injuries and barely made it alive. And then the, the key accident this season was three deaths on Fitzroy, three people that died of exposure on Fitzroy. So Of exposure? Yeah, hypothermia. So, but... but- the weather forecasts are so good these days in the Chalten Massif. What, what, what happened? The weather forecast is superb, but somehow people don't look at it carefully enough, or maybe people think that they are Mano Salvaterra. I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, all, all I know um, is that on the day that these people died, um, on the day that these people got into trouble, because one of them survived for several days, um, it was clearly not a day to be on the high peaks. The forecast was very, very conclusive. This was not a day to be on the high peaks, and they went all the same. So wow. there's maybe just underestimate underestimating the weather. Is that what? I guess we don't really know, do we? No, we don't know if they underestimated the weather, uh, if they overestimated their skills. I'm not really sure. So, wow. I mean, a few a few takeaways from, from that one particular accident is, um, number one, learn to look at the forecast very carefully and don't look at WinGuru. I mean, look at more than one model. So WinGuru is a model that apparently these people were looking at. Um, so uh-huh. the, the model itself that Winguru relies on is GFS. So learn to look at other models as well to compare forecast between different models, between different numerical models. Um, another, another, another point is like um, using, using a more basic uh, common sense judgment as far as weather. I mean, you start going uh-huh. up a peak, you see the clouds build up in the distance, you see the wind pick up, you throw the ropes down and you start rappelling, regardless of what you think right. the weather forecast said. Um, yes. And then another, another takeaway is uh, these people did not have a communication device, so they were not able to yeah, communicate with Chalten because one of them survived for three days by himself before dying of exposure. Oh, my God. And unable to call for help. Um, exactly. He had a cell phone. He had a cell phone in which he managed to record uh, several messages saying goodbye and so on. But he was he wow. did he did not have a radio or a, an inreach or a satellite phone, um, 
a VHF radio today you can buy for less than 60 US dollars. There's no reason why you should not have one in the bottom of your pack. And there was there was three big accidents this season, and in two of them, uh, the parties involved did not have communication devices. Honestly, in the year 2019, that's not okay because you're going to make everything so much more difficult. They cost less than $60. You should have it in your pack. It's going to facilitate the rescue. It's going to make it much, much, much faster. It's going to help both you and the rescuers that are going to come for you. So what, what happened was that a lot of pressure was placed onto the local community, onto the local rescue team to go and find these people, even though the weather was terrible. So a number of climbers volunteered and went up all the same uh, in spite of the weather. I mean, they shouldn't have gone, honestly, because the weather was really terrible. They went all the same just uh, to be good Samaritans. And unfortunately, one of them got really badly hurt. One so, of the rescuers? Yeah, one of the rescuers took a bad fall onto a lake, oh. into a lake, like a 60, 50 meter fall into a lake. He some, oh my God. He somehow managed to swim out. I mean, um, he slipped, he slipped scrambling. Wow. So then the, the next big uh, accident that happened happened in a secondary tower. It was a, a fall while rappelling, and the person involved suffered a really bad concussion with displacement of some of the cranial bones and so on. So a really bad fall onto his head. Again, in this case, the party had no communication device, so he couldn't. Uh, they couldn't alert anybody. Mm -hmm. And. The, the big slip that they made was they thought that there was helicopter rescue in this area, which there's not. So instead, instead of bringing the partner down, what, uh, what his partner did is he went to get help, assuming that a helicopter would come with a long line and would pluck his partner off the face. Okay. So this misconception of what the resources available here are, what, what it resulted in is that the partner got left up there. I mean, but luckily there was a, very, a group of very, very capable climbers um, right below the tower, and they were alerted, and they, they managed to climb up to the injured climber, bring him down, and then the rescue team came in and and walk walk the climber out. And so the the climber probably should have tried to carry his partner down instead, yeah? Yes, I mean in this in this area, if you want your partner to survive and your partner gets hurt, you need to bring him down. There's no yeah. other option. And, and because these are volunteer rescue teams and there's not a helicopter on standby, so you call for help with your with your communication device, but you have to be self-sufficient at the same time. This is very, very, very important. And people should learn how to carry out self-rescue, how, uh -huh. how to put your partner on your back and rappel with your partner on your back, how to transfer the weight of your partner 
onto a belay with a with a clutch setup, no, as you do with a very heavy hold bag, how to yeah. load load him or her back onto your back and continue rappelling. This this is a maneuver that anybody coming to climb in this area should know how to do and should practice yeah. a whole bunch before coming. There have been a couple of instances in recent years that, that immediately come to mind of climbers being injured and dying of exposure while their partner went to go get help. It's a terrible situation to, to be in. Um, wow. So some of the, it's a terrible yeah. situation. It's a terrible situation to be in and it puts a lot of pressure on, on other people because the minute that you leave your partner up there, it implies that other people will have to take on the responsibility of going up there. So, uh, yes, you need, you, you need to judge the condition of your partner very carefully. In some cases, uh, in the past, there's been accidents where the partner clearly could not be brought down because the injuries were too severe. So we shouldn't judge all accidents similar to this one in the same way. But, uh -huh. clearly, but clearly, in this case, um, it, it would have been... Um, far more pref far preferable um, if the partner had been able to bring down the injured climber. Then, then yeah. everything would have worked much smoother, and less people would have put would have been put in jeopardy. Uh huh. Yes. Wow. Um, and then there was one more accident. This one. This one happened on Cerro Torre. It was. Um, a rockfall, a tip fib break as a result of rockfall. Luckily, in that case, there was enough climbers around that it was possible to carry out self-rescue all the way to the ice cap. And then the climber involved, uh, I mean, the, the injured climber and the climbers involved were very, very, very lucky that a military helicopter became available. A lot of people lobbied for it to come, uh, and he managed to make it in just before bad weather and pick up this injured climber from the ice cap. Otherwise, otherwise the rescue would have been a four or five day rescue. And that is so rare, isn't it? How often has a helicopter ever pulled somebody out of the, the Chautan Massif? So not very often whatsoever. There's never helicopters available here. I mean, there's no helicopters available here on a regular basis. Um, if you look, if you look at the stats of the local rescue team, so the lo the local rescue team is volunteer, um, but they're very very capable people. They know how to bring people back from even the furthest places in this massif. They have carried out in the last twenty years roughly a hundred and twenty rescues. And in 83% of the cases, there has, has been no helicopter involved. So your decisions need to take that into account. Um, right. I mean, I understand that we also don't want to restrict every move that we make, but it is important, like, I mean, one, one easy option is to climb in teams of three. You have more manpower to move people and you have more brain power to make good decisions. As much time as you've spent there, 
what are some of the things you see in terms of the importance of risk management? What things should people basically assess? I mean, you mentioned the weather, you mentioned uh, communication devices. What else? So some of the most important risk management factors would be uh, to take into account conditions. So the current conditions of the mountains. So you might have set out for a certain objective from home, but you might arrive to Chaltan and the route that you intend to climb on Fitzroy is out of condition. Um, and another, another key aspect is to take into account your mental and physical condition, which might be different than from when the moment that you made those plans. No, you might have made plans three months yeah. ago uh, to climb Fitzroy, but you might arrive to Chelten and you might be tired, you might be stressed to be in a, in a new country, the route might be out of condition. So trying to be more flexible is useful to keep things a little bit more real. Yes. And, and it's probably crucial in the Alpine to build in a huge buffer. I mean, it, it's one thing when you're at the sport crag or the climbing gym to, to try as hard as you can and, and fail and fall over and over. That's how you get better. But that's really not the way it should be in the mountains, right? I mean, you should pick something well within your, within your range. Yeah, you, you need to think that the real difficulty of a climb is not uh, if everything goes right. The real difficulty of a climb is anything that can happen if something even minute goes wrong. So, right. so let's imagine that you suffer a very badly sprained ankle um, up on the Franco-Argentine. Do you have the skills to get yourself down? Yes or no? I mean, you cannot count on everything going right um, in an environment that has so many variables. Yes, that's a really good point, and that's probably that's probably the most important thing for people to recognize. And I think it can be hard sometimes when we're so accustomed to to seeing great photos of of everything that does go right, or or of some of our heroes or people we look up to doing these great things. It's natural that we want to be there, but it it also takes a long time of mountain judgment and and basically being humble with the surroundings in order to have a safety margin. Yeah, and I think what you mentioned at the end is very important, no? being, being humble, understanding that doubting is a virtue, is, 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 is not something that... Um, yeah. yeah, doubt is, is good, yeah. Yeah, doubt is good. I mean, El Chelten does not feel like one of the great ranges anymore. Um, but to some degree, it is no. So it has aspects. Oh, yeah. There's there's a town below it. So one has the feeling that one is in Chamonix. But when you go to the mountains, even though there's climbers all over the place, you're very much alone, and you need to keep that in mind. Yes. And then there's other other important things to remember regarding rescues. Is um, when when there's a rescue, even though the rescue team is volunteer people have been charged for the rescues. So it's important to have adequate insurance coverage. Mm -hmm. and, and adequate insurance coverage would be around $10,000 for the rescue itself. 
and then an additional coverage for hospital and repatriation, which are also very, very, very important factors to be insured for. Right. So the, the last thing to think about uh, when we're discussing uh, rescues, objectives, and risk management is something that um, these um, Spanish brothers, the Pooh brothers, uh, wrote in a recent um, post that they made on Facebook and that they published in several websites, which is that the moment to show our empathy is at the time in which we choose our objectives and in which we lace our boots, no? And in essence, what they argue is that by choosing an objective well within our limits, that's when we're being empathetic towards our family members and towards the people that potentially will come to rescue us. I, I know it sounds like an odd concept, but... Um, well, not when you think about it. When you think about it, it, it it's a very respectful concept. Yes, we, but but at the same time, one could argue that we should defend um, our capacity to risk our own skin in any way we want and to make our own decisions. But but none of us are are, are ever truly independent individuals. I mean, there's all kinds of people that depend on us. There are all kinds of people that love us, and and more than anything here, there's an enormous community here that will come to rescue you if you have an accident, no? Yes. So well, risk is always risk is always such an individual and impossible to define topic, but but simply the things that that you're bringing up here I think are really important because they make us think. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to to incorporate this idea of being empathetic in your choices and in the risk that you take, being empathetic towards the people that you love and towards the people that potentially will come to rescue you. Um, how, yes. you how you digest that, I mean, all of us will digest it differently, but I think it's a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah, me too, I like that. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome, Kelly. Good to chat with you. Okay, Rolo, you too. Take care, man. Toward the start of this episode, Rolo mentioned Jerome Sullivan's big new route on Cerro San Lorenzo and some other remote climbs he's been doing in Patagonia in recent years. And in fact, Jerome will be our guest on the very next episode of The Cutting Edge. That episode will air in late April. Thanks to Rolando Garibaldi and Kelly Cordes for this month's show. And thanks to Hilleberg the Tent Maker for making The Cutting Edge possible. See the full line of bomb-proof Hilleberg tents at hilleberg.com. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, wishing you happy climbs.